0: Well, good evening, everybody. I, uh, I made it here today. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was an interesting adventure, though, because um, I had the option, I guess, of uh, coming last night, but I was just finishing up a 20-day trip around the US, eight cities, 20 days, and uh, so I went home for a couple days and basically paid bills, did laundry, um saw my wife and my daughter and then left again. But in order to get here, because, you know, when you're in California, which is where I live, don't hold it against me. There are a few of us left. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, to get here, you know, as soon as you get out of bed, you've already lost three hours. And then, you know, you've got to fly and it just takes as long as it does. And there's no way to get to Cleveland from Los Angeles without going someplace and changing planes. So I had all that going on that was kind of complicating the <clears throat> the journey. But thank the Lord we had good weather. And uh, we actually arrived a couple minutes early into Cleveland. And so with that, I am here in front of you tonight. Now, I'm, I'm something of an anomaly. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I made it. <laughs> I'm something of, a, of an anomaly, and sometimes people don't know what to do with me, and I know that, so I'm just warning you up front, you might not know what to do with me. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's sort of an unspoken rule, but if you run in revival circles, and I have a funny feeling this church is one of those churches, uh, based on the worship you're playing and just the style of folk. You know, many of us are wearing Levi's. Um, So the the unwritten rule, but it is kind of a a rule, is that you're supposed to start out with a story, and then you tell another story, and maybe a joke somewhere. And in all of that, then you might actually read a verse or two of the Bible. I know it's a shocking concept, but stay with it. And then, um, you know, you do your kind of short sermonette of around 20 minutes, and then... um, hopefully the glory falls and you know the ministry time begins I I understand that model but I, I have a some, somewhat different agenda tonight um, so Yuri asked me to come because of our mutual friends the lynches those of you that are in this church know them um, I go way way back with the lynches to I'm not even sure how far but more or less 1982 or three which of course is dating me too but Anyway, um, so Joni, I think, was the one who sent the original message to Yuri, and then Robbie put in a good word also. Um, And when Yuri and I first talked, we were doing a lot of talking about deliverance, so I thought, well, maybe we're going to focus on that. But in the car today, it became obvious we needed to do something a little bit different, because he told me that you guys are really questing after uh, more breakthroughs in healing. And so, I want to talk about something that is not talked about very often, and that is how there is an intersection between healing and deliverance in many cases. It's not universal, but when it's a thing, it's the thing. And when it's the thing, whether or not you like deliverance, whether or not, well, probably not here, but in many churches, we don't talk about deliverance, we don't do deliverance, don't go there with those demons, uh, just not... It's a no-fly zone. And so um, rather than start with a story, I'll get to them, but uh, rather than start with a story, I'm going to do something really old school that they taught me to do in seminary, and that is I'm going to read a passage of the Bible. <laughs> and so if you've got yours, and I hope it's like a real legit one, not one of these digital, you know, downloadable things, what are you going to do when your Internet connection fails, Right. Or your kid spills, you know, orange juice on your keyboard and suddenly you've lost your Bible. Anyway, uh, Luke chapter 4 has a story in it that it has a lot more meaning if you've been to Israel. Because, you know, as you're reading it, you're actually seeing in your mind's eye the location and the things that are going on. I'll try to narrate a little bit, but but mostly I want the word of God to speak for itself. So in Luke chapter four, verse 31, it says, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee. It's interesting that it says that. It tells you Luke is writing to an audience that doesn't really know the area. Because everybody who was Jewish, and certainly anybody who lived in the northern part of Israel would have known exactly where Capernaum was. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. But it's, it's, you know, the equivalent of our church day. This is worship day. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word-possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, I am know I caught some of you by surprise. <laughs> but but I want you to to feel the, the impact of that, right? It's a normal kind of a service, kind of like we're having here, and all of a sudden, something goes off. And so this evil spirit continues on, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. Now that word rebuke, is the one I want to focus on as we lay tracking for this message. Jesus rebuked him, which means, in so many words, it is as though, he didn't literally do this, just to be clear, but it is as though he reached out, grabbed that thing by the throat, and went, shut up! He shut it down. The French have a word that they use for this "garrot," which means like you take a wire and you... Jesus choked it off shut it down, and then he said, be silent and come out of him. So this is what rebuking is. Rebuking is not saying, I rebuke you, Satan. Rebuking is, stop it right now, like that. <laughs> well, I'm being a little bit animated because, I'm, again, I'm trying to move this out of the realm of two-dimensional intellectual processing of a Bible story into seeing this thing happen in real time. Jesus is preaching and this demon has interrupted the message and it says he had authority. And so when the demon does this, it's like, "Uh uh-huh. And you're just about to get a big dose of authority, Mr. Demon. That's enough. And so the demon had thrown him down in in their midst. Now, I'm pointing this out, too, because there is a widespread meme that's floating through the body of Christ these days usually by people who don't have a lot of experience with deliverance. I hate to say that, but it's true. That deliverance should be a quiet, neat thing. And so people sit in a chair and they're like this and we, you know, say the appropriate words over them and we sort of wave our hand. And then as we do that, people say, am I okay now? Yeah, you're okay. How do I know? Well, you know, because I did the prayer, I did the thing. And so this has become as it's developed, people say, well, you know, there should be no noise, there should be no muss, there should be no fuss. Um, and, and with that, we've come into something that I call quiet deliverance. And all I can say is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not get the memo. Because when he told this demon to be silent and come out of him, presumably it should have gone silent, done nothing, and just floated away. But the demon actually threw the man down in their midst, and if we read the Mark account, it's the same story, but Mark has information that Luke doesn't have, and Luke has information Mark doesn't have. So to really get the, the totality of it, you want to read them side by side. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known to theologians as the synoptic gospels, which means you read them together to get the fullness of what's going on there. So what Mark tells us is that the demon cried out and then it threw him down. So even though Jesus, the son of God, had told this demon, be quiet, it didn't listen and didn't, didn't get quiet. Instead, it went, Aah! and it threw him to the ground and then it came out. And again, I'm trying to help you feel the drama of it. I'm deliberately acting this out a bit and getting loud and doing things that, you know, my normal style is more like this. I'm not, I'm not you know, one of those loud kind of screamy preachers. But, but you have to understand what's going on in the, uh, in the story. And I'm, and I'm pointing this out because this is such a common teaching and it is so widely accepted. And, you know, with the advent of the Internet where we have the democratization of information transfer, so kind of anybody who wants to talk can. Um, There's a lot of people that are saying things that are just nonsense. It's just nonsense to say this. All right, well, so Jesus um, gets the demon out, even after he tells it to be silent and come out. It's not silent, and it throws him down, but it does come out, and it doesn't harm him. And so they were all amazed, and they said to one another, what is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And so reports about him went out into all the surrounding region. Now this occurs in the synagogue in Capernaum, and if you go to Capernaum today, the way they have a, you know, kind of the flow of foot traffic set up, you, know, you come to the, the kind of the entrance to the town, can't really say the city, and you walk through this kind of archway thing, and the, the synagogue is just over here as you go through the gate, kind of to the, if you were looking at a clock face, it'd be at about 10 o'clock. And you can see the synagogue sitting right there. And so this all happened in that synagogue in Capernaum. And although the top part of it's been remodeled, it was remodeled about fifteen or 1,600 years ago, the foundations are the very foundations that the, that the building stood on when Jesus stood there. So we know exactly where this happened. I mean, we can literally walk in there and go, this is the place. It just had a remodeling about 400 years after him. So he's now done with the message, and I guess, you know, as they say, the medium is the message. The deliverance was the message. Uh, And he arises, and he leaves the synagogue, and he goes to Simon's house. Now, if you're in Capernaum, and you walk out of the, uh, the synagogue, the main doors of that synagogue... Simon's house is down by the water, and it's approximately from that wall to that wall, and you're at Simon's house. That's all the further it is. And so he comes out, and he he goes over there, and it's right down by the water. Simon's a fisherman, so he wants a short commute, right? So he gets up in the morning, and he walks another, whatever, 30 meters, and he gets in the boat, and off they go to fish. All right, so he goes to Simon's house... And now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf and he stood over her and rebuked the fever. That's the same word that we just saw a few verses ago with rebuking. So what it's telling you, although you may not see it because it doesn't say, Simon's mother-in-law had a demon. But what it's telling you is that the fever she had was demonically inspired. And so what he does is he does to that same spirit what he had done to the spirit that was in the man in the synagogue whatever that is 30 yards apart or 40 yards whatever it is um, wall to wall boom same exact thing same exact word he commands it to stop it and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve him and so we see in this account that at least as it pertains to her. I'm not saying every single time when you run into a fever, this is the way you should handle it. But I can tell you in my journeys through the years, I've been in a lot of places where truly to get traction in breaking the back of fevers over people, you need to rebuke that thing like it's an evil spirit. Boom. Now, I'm going to go off script here. I have a set of notes we're going to get to, but last year in March, I was getting ready to do a broadcast, and like everyone, I was looking at Psalm 91, because this was what every preacher who takes the Word of God seriously in the entire world was talking about, because we had this small problem called COVID. You might have heard of it, and so, you know, they were locking the country down, and Everything was canceling and no one could go anywhere or do anything. And so there was a lot of fear in the air. And as that was unfolding, I was getting ready to do this broadcast. And I thought to myself, Self, you haven't read Psalm 91 in Hebrew in a while. Maybe you ought to do that. And so I said to myself, Self, that's a very good idea. And so I um, clicked open. To Psalm 91. Now in this case, I wasn't using this Bible that I have in front of me, which is an English Bible. I was using software. Um, And what I'm about to share with you is not, repeat, not going to be found in Blue Letter Bible or studylight.org or any of those. Those are very good first level tools for Bible study. For most people, that's all they ever need. But I wasn't using those. I was using something called Logos Bible software, which is more of a scholar's tool. And in Psalm 91, verse 5, it says, You will not fear. And it says the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. It's interesting that it says the arrow that flies by day because doesn't Paul the Apostle use this identical imagery in Ephesians chapter 6 where he talks about extinguishing the flaming arrows of the evil one? I I suspect that's where he got it from. I think he borrowed it straight out of Psalm 91. I mean, he's not here, we can't ask him, but... It seems logical because Paul was a rabbi. He certainly knew the Hebrew scriptures well. But you will not fear the terror of the night. Well, you know, fear has been one of the things that's gripped many people as it pertains to COVID. And, you know, sometimes there is some justification to it. I mean, I'm not saying we should live in fear. But, you know, when your life is on the line or when your loved one's life is on the line, there's a reason for valid concern. But anyway, it says we're not supposed to have that problem of fearing the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. And then it goes on, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness. Now, the word pestilence there in Hebrew is dever, and it, it, it means about what it sounds like. It's a pestilence. It's a, it's a plague. And that's interesting because, of course, that's what COVID is to us. But then it goes on at the very end of verse 6, and it says, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. And the word destruction there is the Hebrew word keteb. If you point the, the bet differently, it would be katev. It's the same letters, just whether you pronounce it with a v or a b. But either way, that's the name of it. And so anyway, I'm looking at that word, and I clicked on it and drilled into it. And again, you need to have the right tools. You won't just get this out of Strong's or one of the common Bible study tools. But it says in the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon, which is one of the standard analytical tools that scholars use when they're looking at Hebrew, it says very clearly that um, Keteb was believed in the rabbinical community to be the evil spirit. And it actually says that. That was behind all plagues and pestilences worldwide. Just let that sink in for a second. Rabbis, some of whom... If they were Sadducees, didn't believe in spirits. The Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. But they had the belief in Jesus' day that all plague, pestilence, that sort of thing, was rooted in this thing called Keteb. So I thought to myself, self, good job reading it in Hebrew today. But I thought, I'm going to do a prayer for this Keteb thing on this broadcast and we'll just give it a try. I mean, at that point, it was just kind of newfound knowledge. Now, note that I got this out of the Word of God with some, some extra commentary that draws on rabbinical sources. An angel did not come to me at the time of the evening sacrifice bearing a scroll. <laughs> and I say it that way because, of course, those things do happen. But anymore in charismatic Christianity, it is as though... If you don't have the angel bearing the scroll story, then people kind of dismiss what you have to say. It's like, it's not legit. And I actually want to level set that idea tonight right here. I'd much rather have it in the word of God than have an angel come bearing it, although I'd happily have an angel come speak to me. Right? And I have had that experience, but I don't I don't wear that on my sleeve. That's not my calling card. And I think it's important that we understand that to the ancient Jews and by the way if you're a Christian you're a Jew because you've been grafted in as a wild olive branch into the true true tree and so whether or not you were born with the genetics you've been made a Jew doesn't mean you got to keep the whole mosaic code and all that but but I think you know we've had all this sort of stuff swirling around for centuries that has effectively pushed the Jews off the side of the cliff. And the church sort of saunters in and says, yeah, we're the deal. And it's more like, no. And Paul even says, why are you boasting? To the Jews belong the law and the prophets. And so it's really critical that we understand that in God's mind, his word is paramount. In fact, the scripture says he honors his word above his name. So while, again, I'll say it again, I'd mean, i love to have an angel appear to me and give me a revelation. I've had it happen from time to time. This did not come by an angelic revelation. And Paul even says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary or different from, divergent from the one you received, let him be accursed. What does that mean? It's going to wither and die. It's never going to bear any fruit. And so again, I want to bring us right back to what's in the Word of God. So this thing, Ketev, I thought, all right, let's give it a try. So I'm on this, you know, Zoom broadcast. Chris, were you on that broadcast when I did that thing? Not, the original. Not that one, okay. Well, anyway, I did the teaching I was going to do, and then I kind of talked about this, and then I said, now I'm going to pray. And I prayed this prayer over the broadcast. Now, I'm sitting in my house with nobody else there, but I almost immediately got a Ping coming back at me from somebody who said, I had a 105 degree fever. And as soon as you prayed this, my fever dropped. And it was at 98.6. And the person was basically healed. They never went back to being sick with COVID. There was another person who was having so much respiratory distress that um, as we prayed, they, they actually almost signed off of the broadcast early to go to the hospital to, you know, get oxygen and maybe ventilated. And um, that individual, within five minutes, was able to breathe perfectly fine. And then there was a third person. This is a really interesting one. They'd signed on to the broadcast late. And so they'd listen to the end, and then as soon as we finished it, they went back and watched the beginning. <laughs> but anyway, so they, they got it kind of in somewhat out of order. But notwithstanding that, w- within about an hour, they were in their garage cleaning their garage. Well, so I was like, wow, maybe we're onto something here. So we've gone around and we prayed this prayer over many people. And it involves commanding Kateb to release those who have COVID. And it's worked for people who actively have it. A friend of mine was, was on a ventilator and the doctors had told his wife that he was going to die. He was 37 years old. And uh, we had to pray for him a couple times. Uh, I wish it were always one and done, but it's not. But we prayed for him a couple of times over FaceTime, uh, a couple of his other friends and I, and we were all kind of tuned into this Kateb thing. And, uh, you know, he's out and about and he's totally fine today, but the doctors had written him off and told his wife he'd be dead within 24 hours. We've literally had people on ventilators who have gotten off the ventilators, which as you probably know is rare, and, uh, and they walked out of the hospital, some of them within the hour, generally the next day, but... I think that's mainly because the doctors want to keep them for observation. But anyway, um, so this prayer is, is, I don't know, it's like a thermonuclear weapon on, on COVID. We've had people healed of long COVID. We've had people who have had um, you know, adverse reactions to the injections uh, get healed. It's, it's really powerful. So even though it's not really what I was, uh, it's not in my script. We'll go back to the script in a minute. I just want to do that right now. Because there's probably people in here, well, now, if you have COVID, you shouldn't be in here. But but you may have had it, and you may have lingering effects in your body. And not only that, uh, you may have loved ones or friends, wherever they are, who have it and who are struggling with it. On my way over here from the hotel tonight, I called a friend of mine who unexpectedly got it and was in a very bad situation two days ago. And I wanted to check in on him, so... I don't know if he was really at risk of death, but he was not doing well two days ago. And when I called him, he sounded way better, but he still felt kind of COVID trashy is what I call it. It's a technical medical term. <clears throat> so anyway, I prayed for him and his wife had it too. And uh, so I prayed for both of them. And the wife was like, Woo, what was that? And I was like, all right, that's what I'm talking about. And, uh, and you know, when, when we ended... Two days ago, my friend was sobbing in tears. And let me just say this. This is not a guy that you would think of as a crybaby. Um, and tonight, he was like, wow, that was powerful. I'm feeling better just <laughs> listening to that prayer. Well, so this is a this is thing. This is the way we do it. Um, when we pray this prayer, we always pray over the various systems of the body that can be affected. And I, I generally think of it as seven. I don't know if seven kind of an important number to Christians. But as we pray and command Kateb to release people's bodies, we pray for their head, which specifically includes their sinuses. Could be these up here or these down here, but we command it to release the sinuses. Now, we all know that COVID uh, uh, congregates in the sinuses because if you've had a PCR test, and who hasn't these days, they stick that thing up your nose and they're checking out what's in your sinuses. So we pray for the sinuses. And with it, we, we pray for the brain, too, because a lot of times people get brain fog. Then we pray for the, the throat, because a lot of times people start getting a lot of mucus, and they really can't breathe out of their throat. And then we pray over the lungs, and there's two directions with the lungs. As we pray over the lungs, we pray, if the lungs are turning to jelly, because COVID will do that, it'll cause all the tissue in the lungs to become just like a gooey mess. It's a form of pneumonia. Pneumonia is what it is they call it covid pneumonia alternatively it can cause the air sacs to crystallize and become hard so that the lungs can't expand and contract and they can't transfer oxygen between the you know the thin wall of the lung uh, so that oxygen gets into the blood and so this is why they measure the blood levels and they talk about the oxygen saturation level my friend that was 37 years old when we prayed for him he was at 72 and literally three minutes after we prayed, he was lying there in bed on the ventilator and they had the the oxygen saturation monitor, you know, right in, next to him. I don't know how this works, so I'm only reporting. I don't I can't explain this. It went to 104. <laughs> how do you have 104% saturation? I don't know the answer to that, but that's what it said. Um, and then it kind of, you know, dropped back to something you'd expect. And when it when it dropped back, uh, it fell to about 95, which is a normal range for even healthy people, depending on how healthy they are and you know, how much deep breathing and that sort of thing they've been doing. So we pray in both directions for the lungs, the jelly and the hardening. Then we move down to the digestive tract. We pray over the stomach and the intestines because a lot of people who get COVID have long-term digestive problems. And of course, one of the symptoms, although not one that they talk about as much, is you could get the runs. So, you know, it it will affect your GI tract, and so we pray over that and command it to release that. Um, And then we pray for the kidneys and the liver, because when people get complications, many times they end up with either liver or kidney problems, which can result in death. And so we, you know, we've moved down through the whole body system, and uh I, you know, I've been trying to pay attention to this. I've prayed for several hundred people using the prayer I'm going to use just in a moment. And uh, something around a quarter to a third of them get healed instantly. Like, or within a couple minutes. They're done. The rest of them, they kind of come out of it. But you know, it beats the alternative. If this is one trajectory, this is a much better trajectory. Um, And so, generally, people are feeling a lot better by the next day, and it might be another day or two before they're up and around. But, but anyway, it turns the corner for them. And so, I'd rather have it be instantaneous, and sometimes it is. But even if it isn't, like I say, I'll take it because it beats the alternative. So, with that, um, if you have—is your hand in the air because you've had COVID, or you have a question? Okay. Uh huh. Yep. And I think the reason that it works is, you know, the vaccine is based on the, depending on which one you have, either the weakened virus or, you know, engineered RNA that looks like what the virus would do. And so I think it's still the same spirit that's behind this. And so I'm back to what the rabbi said. The rabbi said it. Ken didn't say it, but Jesus modeled it. He rebuked a spirit when dealing with a fever and it gave breakthrough. And this is all really a setup for everything else we're gonna talk about tonight, so I'm not just like burning airtime; We're just moving the ministry time up a bit in the sequence because this is so relevant to us right now. In fact, while I was on the plane coming here today, you know, I was watching the little newsfeed on the back of the seat, and uh, I don't know how many of you know, but the nation of Austria went into lockdown today. And there's been, I've been getting a lot of reports from the people I work with in Europe um, and you know, I have plans to go in March and they've been like, you don't be too sure, don't buy your tickets yet because you may not be coming, maybe that Europe's going into a new lockdown. Australia's been through six of them, six. So um, anyway, we have, a, we have something better. And uh, so we're, we're gonna use it here and now tonight. If you have had COVID, again, if you have it, you shouldn't be here right now. But if you have had it, And you have long-term complications. If you're well, you're well. You don't need this prayer, but put it in your pocket. You might need it for somebody who does. But you've had any long-term complications from COVID, um, stand up. And then as I pray, take note of how I do this, because you'll want to pray for your friends and family over the phone or FaceTime or Zoom, whatever you're going to use, so that they can get free of this malady that's overtaken our world. All right. Now we are here to train and teach. So for those who are not standing, I want you to watch these individuals. If you see signs of the Holy Spirit moving on them, put your hands on them and pray along with me and pray further. I won't mind if you're still praying when I go back to the main part of the message. Um, I'd much rather that this be done well and thoroughly. Does that make sense? All right, so let's pray. Father, we come in the name of Jesus, and we thank you that Jesus has given us dominion over all the power of the evil one. This is what the Word of God says, and we take it at face value. And Father, I thank you that in your Word, there's this hidden nugget that the rabbis ferreted out centuries ago. We've kind of forgotten it in our day, but through fortunate circumstance, or maybe you were giving me a nudge that morning when I felt prompted to read the passage in Hebrew. <clears throat> nevertheless, it's there in your word that there is this spirit, this evil spirit, this demon named Kateb that has been unleashed on the world and it has caused people to be sick. And I thank you that even this thing, we have authority over it. And now we come to assert the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, Kateb, listen up. Jesus Christ defeated you at the cross. Your power was broken at the cross you have nowhere to hide and you have nowhere to go. And we come to drive you out of the bodies of the people with the damage that you've done and the lingering effects. And so by the name of Jesus and in the authority of Jesus, is that Barb Herzog back there? Spirit of God's falling on Barb. Someone should put their hand on her. By the authority of Jesus Christ, we take authority over Keteb and we command you to release these people. Get out of their body now. Get out in the name of Jesus. This woman here, put your hand on her. Pray for her. We command that spirit, go in the name of Jesus. Your power is broken. Leave her body. Take all of your effects and go. We drive you out in the name of the king. And now, Father, as we assert, the Lord's on that woman in the mask right there. We speak to the condition over your lungs in particular. We break the power of death that has tried to take you and we command it to go. Keteb, release that woman now. And now, Father, as we've asserted the authority of Jesus in direct conflict with the enemy, we ask that your healing power would come in behind and that you would touch those that have stood up for prayer and that they would receive your power into their bodies. All three of the people in that midsection on the left side of the church, there's two women and a man in a gray jumper, sweater in the middle. Spirit of God's on all three of you. Healing power is resting on you right now. And so, Lord, we just ask now that your Spirit would flow into them. We speak specifically to the sinuses, that they would be clear and the brain fog would go in the name of Jesus. We speak specifically to the lungs. We command the lungs to receive the healing power of God. We say to you that the kingdom of heaven has come near to you tonight. And so we command you to bow the knee to Lord Jesus and to receive His power as he is in this place at this time. Lungs, if you're jellied, if you're liquefied, if your air capacity has been reduced, we command you open up and breathe. Receive the full ability to breathe again. And if you have become crystallized and hardened with the same effect, we command the crystallization, break up, pass out of the body, everything that is hardened, Receive that. The Spirit of the Lord's all over you. There you go. That's it. Lungs release the crystallization. Welcome to Capernaum. Out, out, out. You know what I like? That means good lung capacity. <laughs> Just saying. And now we speak to stomachs and intestines. We command you to release the effects that have been laid upon you by the taskmaster named Keteb. That healing power would flow into you and you would function normally in the name of Jesus. And Father, we ask that you would release power over the liver and the kidneys. That any effects that have come into these organ systems, that they would be strengthened He probably meant it differently, but Paul the Apostle did pray that we would be strengthened in the inner man. So, Lord, we ask for strengthening in the inner man, the inner woman, the inner parts of our body, that these areas that have been held back, there are several of you, I can't get around everybody at the moment, but there are several of you, the the Spirit of God is falling on you, and there there is obvious and overt power moving through you. Just yield to that. If you fall, that's okay. If you shake, that's okay. She was screaming, that's okay. So, Jesus began to do and to teach, so we just kind of flipped it around tonight. But Lord, we just ask now for the liver and the kidneys, and we ask that your divine power would move through them, that the resurrection life of Jesus that is spoken of in Romans 8 would become the inheritance we walk in, and that Keteb and COVID would be utterly and completely defeated. There would be not a trace left in their bodies. In the name of Jesus, let it be so. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, and that's the way we do it. I have a video on it. It's on social media. If you want to check it out, you can hear a repeat of it. Well, we started out talking about Jesus in Capernaum. We kind of transitioned to Psalm 91. Okay, now I'm going to go back to what you're supposed to do in Renewal Circles. I'm going to start with a story of my own. (laughs) Took me a while to get there, but here we are. So in 2017, um, I went on a ministry trip to China. I won't say where, but China. And, uh, you know, at that point, no one had heard of COVID, but right behind my visit there um, the Chinese government locked down cracked down on churches that were unregistered and that became my last trip to China for I'm not sure how long because you couldn't go back without potentially putting at risk the believers that were there and then COVID came and all travel stopped but on that trip Um, my first morning after I'd flown in, I woke up and I had a message from the pastor asking me to go pray for a baby boy who had a hernia. Now, this is a particular kind of hernia. There's different sorts of them, and those that are surgeons and gastroenterologists and whatnot that kind of work with this part of the body, they know kind of the ins and outs and the different types. But this particular hernia was what they call an inguinal hernia, which means it, it was right here. could have been over here, but it was here and this is where the leg joins the trunk of the body. And when you get an inguinal hernia, um, part of your intestines pop through the body wall, oftentimes it will strangulate, become gangrenous, and could become life-threatening. It isn't usually immediately life-threatening, but it is painful. So this baby had been born uh, two months before with this kind of a hernia, this inguinal hernia, and um, the baby had not slept in the entire two months of its life. So it was, it was an unhappy baby. And so the parents brought him. And so we have the baby, the dad and the mom. And then we've got the dad's mother. And they all came as a group, the four of them. And they had their wet nurse with them as well. And they were, as you would expect, all of them exhausted after two months of fussing and crying and no sleep. And um, of note, not only did the baby have an inguinal hernia... But the father had an inguinal hernia, which had been repaired when he was, at that time, eight years old. And uh, it, it had been a botched procedure because China was a different nation in many ways during his childhood. And during the surgical procedure, the lights had gone out. And so the surgeons had been forced to light candles and finish the procedure by candlelight. And in that process, I don't know, whatever they did, they didn't do as good of a job as they might have. And so he always had kind of a a hitch in his get-along, and and it never really healed correctly. But as I began talking to them about this, it turned out that not only did the baby have it, not only did the dad have it, but the grandfather, who was the spouse of the grandma who'd come along, he had had it, and the great-grandfather had had it. So if you've been in charismatic Christianity for more than three weeks, everyone in the room is going to say, generational curse. But it's like, yeah, well, so what are you going to do with that? Right? It's like we strut around saying, yeah, I diagnosed it as a generational curse. Let me show you my spirituality and my incredible prophetic insight. But that's usually what we do, right? We say, well, you have a generational curse, and then we just leave people in that condition. Our job is to fix problems, not just make pronouncements. (laughs) So, I did what everybody would do. I put my hands on the baby, and I said, you know, hernia be healed in the name of Jesus. Nothing happened. So I tried to literally, hernia be healed in the name of Jesus. Nothing happened. So, I did then what I will commonly do, and those that know me well or have traveled with me have seen me do this. I got quiet, and I just waited on the Lord. You know, over and over and over in Scripture, it says, David inquired of the Lord. And so I, I sought the face of the Lord right there in this time with these people. And they're kind of looking at me like, okay, big healer, do your thing, right? And I'm, I'm going, well, I got nothing, so I really need God to speak. So I'm waiting on the Lord, and as I'm waiting on the Lord, I get this very distinct impression that comes into my mind. And the voice of God spoke to me, and he said, Where in my word did someone's intestines come out of their body? And so I thought for a minute, and I said, Well, uh, there was King Herod, and when he was in the, the amphitheater, The people cried out and they said, the voice of a God and not of a man. And he didn't kind of put that down. And so an angel struck him and his intestines came out and he died. And then there was Judas who betrayed Jesus and he hung himself. And when they cut him down, he fell and his intestines spilled out. But as I thought of both of these, I thought neither one of these is right. I just knew neither one was right. So I'm thinking, where else does, I mean, where did someone's intestines come out of their body? I know the Bible pretty well. I've been reading it for years, and depending on where, which part we're talking about, I might have read it 40 times or 50 or 100, or in some cases, four or 500. just depends on which part. How much, how much have I preached it? Have I had a reason to go there? But anyway, I'm, I'm familiar with the contours of Scripture. Um, so I could not think of anywhere where someone's intestines came out of their body. So I did what every good healing and deliverance minister does. I got my phone, and I touched the Google app, (laughs) and I typed, intestines come out of body, Bible. That's literally what I put in the search bar. And then, go. And up comes the story of 2 Chronicles 21, verses 18 and 19 this is a story that I'm sure everybody has, you know, front of mind all the time. But it just goes to show how God can put his own highlight or spin on his own word when he wants to bring something to our attention. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, we have the story of King Jehoram, who is not one of the kings we tend to talk about very much. I mean, we know David, we know Solomon. We know, we know uh, Ahab, boo, hiss, right? So we know some of these guys, but we don't know all of them very well. And as it works out, Jehoram was the son of King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was one of the Judean kings that gets a pretty good report card. He mostly did right in the eyes of the Lord. And his biggest problem was that he was always doing things with King Ahab and getting mixed up in Ahab's intrigues. Jehoram was the crown prince. He was the eldest son of uh, King Jehoshaphat. And it turns out, if you read the story carefully, most people don't know this, he was given in marriage to the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So what were they doing? Well, Jehoshaphat and Ahab decided to create a marriage alliance between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah and thereby reunite the kingdoms that had been split back to the time of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And so, on the surface, this sounds like not a bad idea. We're going to reunite the divided kingdom. But it turns out that Jehoram was a rapscallion, and that's putting it politely. And so, it says that um, along with his six brothers, he was given great wealth and cities, but he was also given the kingdom, he was given the throne which the others were denied. So we know now there are seven sons that come from Jehoshaphat. One of them, the crown prince, he's given in marriage to Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, and then the other six, they made out okay. They had cities and wealth, and I mean, they were nobility. But anyway, it turns out that if you continue reading in the story, it says that of King Jehoram that after his father had died he rose up and he killed all six of his brothers and took all of their wealth to himself. And it says, moreover, he killed many of the princes of Israel, which means, you know, he invaded to the north and many of those who were going to be the successors of Ahab, he killed all of them off. They were his brothers-in-law. And so Jehoram had blood on his hands and it says that the anger of the Lord was stirred up against Jehoram. And it goes on, it says, after all this, the Lord struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And in the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease, and he died in great agony. And as soon as I read that, I was like, his bowels came out of his body. And it was like, bingo, got it. Now I know what we're after here. So I turn to Grandma, who is the mother of the dad of the baby and I asked, has there been any bloodshed in your family? And they looked kind of puzzled and I said, tell me a little bit about the town you came from. It turned out that they had come from this town in western China that is in an Islamic Muslim territory in China. It had been converted by the Muslims about a thousand years ago. And so these were Muslim, well at least the parents were Muslim converts. The grandma wasn't a believer yet. Um, And so this town had about 300 people when they were growing up, but it had since grown to about 500. So I said, was there any kind of tribal structure in the town? Now, mostly they spoke Chinese, but the, the dad spoke very good English, so he was serving as our translator. And it turns out that it, there was a tribal structure. There were three families within this town in western China. One was known as the Zhongs. one was known as the Li's, and one was known as the Liu's. And so I said, did the leadership rotate from time to time? Yes, it does. I said, is there a history of murder within the town? Not that we know of. And I said, is there a history of violence and bloodshed? Yes. I'm like, okay, bang, this is where this is rooted. It shed, it, it's rooted in the unjust shedding of blood the unjust shedding of blood commonly known as murder except they aren't murdering but it's still unjust and so this dad that i'm talking with he was a jong but when his mother who was born into the lee clan had become engaged to the father who sired this dad so this father would have been the grandfather of the baby boy It turned out that her brother, who was a Lee, had actually stabbed his soon-to-be brother-in-law. He recovered from the stabbing, but he was stabbed because of this warfare between the clans. Does this make sense? There's a lot of names here, and they're not names that are common around here, so it would be easy to get lost. So a Lee man had stabbed a Jong man in proximity to the generation of this very family that I was, that I was dealing with. <clears throat> and so I said, well, then this is it. And I had the father who was in front of me, the one with the failed procedure when he was eight years old, I had him repent of the sin of bloodshed among his own clan, the Jongs. Now, he had never done anything like this, but he stood as a direct lineal descendant of those who had done this for a millennium, And even though his own personal hands were clean, the blood guilt on the family persisted. That's what I want to focus on. And so with that, as he repented of it, I broke the curse. And, uh, you know, this is a big question among many circles that I won't delve into tonight. But curses are real, and the Bible does contemplate them. A lot of Christians think that curses don't apply at all. And people immediately go to, Christ freed us from the curse of the law. That's not even close to what we're talking about here. This is the curse of murder. Murder or attempted murder. But anyway, we broke the curse, and we commanded the demonic power that enforced it to leave, because all curses that work have a demonic power enforcing them. Every time, everywhere, universally, no exceptions. If you want more teaching on this, I've got a whole long thing back on the table called, it's a nice light title that you could, you know, read to your children at night called Curse Breaking. Well, anyway, so we broke the curse, commanded the demonic power that enforced it to leave, and then as soon as that happened, it was like I couldn't even stop it. I wanted to, and I, after I said what I said, I wanted to grab it and you know, haul it back and shove it in my own mouth, but it was too late for that. I said, the baby will be fine within three days. But as it happened, at the very moment we prayed, the baby was... Eah, 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 So the baby just immediately falls asleep, and mom walks over, takes her finger, and puts it under the diaper, and she's checking around down here. And just to be clear, because we live in a very strange time, she wasn't touching the baby's genitals. She was feeling here where the hernia was, where the leg joins the trunk, so right there. So she's feeling, she goes, well, it feels a little smaller, but it's still there. But meanwhile, the baby is no longer fussing and goes to sleep, and the grandma says, how did you do that? And I said, do what? She said, make the baby go to sleep. It's been two months. The baby hasn't slept. That alone was enough to get her attention. And the baby's not healed yet. And uh, she goes, I'm supposed to have both of my knees replaced tomorrow, surgically. Uh, Can you pray for my knees? So, you know, the mom's holding the baby, and the baby's... (laughs) And everybody's like, wow, this is awesome. No crying baby. And so we sit her down on the couch, and we pray... You know, knees, receive the power of Jesus, be healed in Jesus' name. Nothing happens. I'm thinking, well, how does this look like the last thing we just tried here? But as I'm I'm there, I look at this woman, and she has a pendant hanging around her neck. Now, Americans would not know even what this is by and large. There might be one or two people in this room that would get this, but most people wouldn't. But this disc, it's, it's about this big around, and it has a center hole about that big. So, you know, it's about that thick as it goes around. And it's made out of, I don't know, some kind of, it could have been jade, but it was kind of a bluish color, so it would have been a bluer jade, not a dark green one. Um, but anyway, I, I, I'm, suddenly my eyes are just drawn to this thing, and I'm looking at it, and I said, would you please remove that from your neck? Because in China, this is known as a B-disc, It's a B-disc, and it is something that um, is very heavily associated with Buddhist occultism. And so, you know, I didn't want to, like, get all dramatic about it, but I, I knew this was a problem. And so she took the thing off and set it on the table in front of her, and then we prayed again. And while we're praying, she opens her eyes, she goes, what was that? And again, this is all being translated. And I said, well, what was what? And she goes, I felt something go through my knees. I said, oh, that's good. I said, why don't you get up? So she stands up. I said, try doing some deep knee bends. So, you know, she's doing this. This is the woman who's supposed to have surgery the next day. And so she's doing like this. And this house that we're in is enormous. It is a very wealthy uh, home that someone has lent to us to do this prayer time. And so I said, why don't you walk up and down the hall? The hallway in that house was about twice as long as this, the width of this room. So she walks up and back. I said, do it five times, up and back, up and back, up and back. She comes back and she says, uh, my knees are fine. I can, I'm totally fine. I said, all right, that's awesome. Um, and I said, you know what Jesus just did for your body, he can do for your soul. Would you like to give your life to Jesus? And this is what she said. She goes, of course, of course. I've been serving Allah all my life, and he's never done anything for me. (laughs) So, Jesus wins on day one. The next day, the baby's hernia has shrunk by half. The next day, which is the second full day, it's half down again, so... 50% of 50% is a quarter, so it's at a quarter of its size. And on day three, the hernia was completely closed and gone. And bonus, the father who had had the botched surgery at age eight, he was also healed on day three. So what do we say about all that? Well, Jesus wins. That's what we say. But it shows you, as much as what I was sharing about Keteb and COVID, it shows you the interplay of demonic power in blocking the actual realization of the healing that we all believe is founded in the atonement. We can all quote Isaiah 53. We all know what the Bible says about these things, but so often we struggle to find the breakthroughs and to you know get get to where we want to be. So let's, let's paper the deal, as they say in the business world. Let's look at some scripture that undergirds everything I'm talking about. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 reads this way. Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now this passage, Luke 9, 1 and 2... It makes it clear that the purpose in sending the 12 was to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's what they were supposed to do. But do we also see that the purpose was to cure people or to heal? Because you can't really separate the proclamation of the kingdom of God from the demonstration of healing breakthrough power. And as much as I love the prophetic, um, you know, sometimes prophecies encourage us, but when your body needs a touch, that's like tangible and real. I actually think there's a place where the prophetic and the power gifts touch and they kind of merge into one, but that's its own teaching too. We won't get to that tonight. So the 12 were to announce the dynamic invasion of God coming to rescue his people. We have teaching on the kingdom of God on the back table. This is foundational stuff I've used for years. It undergirds much of what I do and preach and and teach. And I'll just say this. I think in our time, the concept of the kingdom of God has been largely watered down, even in renewal circles. The person who really made the kingdom popular and powerful was John Wimber. And for a while, people sort of stayed with it, and then they kind of moved kingdom to mean, well, kind of anything they wanted it to mean. So depending on where you are these days, you know, kingdom could mean, well, I better just stop there. I'm going to get into trouble. But bottom line, what Jesus meant by the kingdom and what we often take it to mean or the way we proclaim it is quite different. But the Gospels show that the proper proclamation of the kingdom of God and the healing ministry are inseparably linked. And so we can't properly preach the kingdom of God without having healing go on. It's it's actually, you know, we're giving them only half the meal or something. And when we heal people, we should declare that the kingdom of God has come near. Maybe a few of you caught it, but when there were, I was praying for a few of the people down here in this section, I said, the kingdom of heaven has come tonight. I, I was making a kingdom declaration. I think that's a, that's a missing tool that we often don't realize. This isn't a magic formula, and I, I almost hesitate to teach on it when I do because I don't want it to become a magic formula. It must be mingled with faith. But if you understand that you are coming as a herald declaring that the kingdom has broken in, In this case, right into this room, right into this row. When you understand that you come with that level of authority that Jesus has invested in you, then you should expect that the kingdom will whoosh in behind you and there will be breakthroughs that happen. That's why she began screaming. That's why you fell out. right? That's why the kingdom was breaking in as we did that. So... We can't really preach the kingdom without healing, and when we heal, we have to declare that the kingdom of God has come near. And in American Christianity, the message of the kingdom of God has largely been taken from the stage, and we've replaced a lot of other messaging for that one. But I really want to encourage you to think hard about incorporating this back into your conversations with non-believers, and even when you pray for believers. So, Jesus was a word worker. He linked proclamation and demonstration He did what he taught and he taught what he did and he instructed his disciples to do the same. And this understanding has actually undergirded most of renewal Christianity going back into the 1980s. But again, we kind of lose the roots and things get fuzzy. So right in the middle of Luke 9.1, which was the passage that I just read, Luke says something that's typically overlooked except for maybe in a theoretical sense. Some people kind of view it as, yeah, that... We don't really know what to do with that, but he did say that, but we don't, we don't just move on. But it says, Jesus gave power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So let's start with the obvious. This is a really positive thing, right? To be given power and authority over demons and to cure diseases is amazing, and it's miraculous. But most importantly, it appears to be, and watch this, because I'm on good scriptural ground when I say it, and it's going to poke some of your unbelief that you don't even know is lying there dormant but we got to expose it to deal with it watch this it appears to be unlimited in scope unlimited in scope because it says he gave them authority over all demons not some demons all demons including big ones like keteb which is why when i come i mean i'm like i'm in battle mode right you get out because that's the way you would be on a battlefield. I mean, we got to get a little steel in our souls. And if you're kind of like, you know, please, Mr. Kateb, I'll give you a cookie if you leave. <laughs> Forget about it. You lost the fight before you started the fight. And Matthew has a parallel account to Luke 9. Matthew's is found in Matthew chapter 10. So Luke 9, Matthew 10. So Matthew's parallel account says this, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. Not some, not most, not a few, every single one. And if you read the language, especially in Greek, it's obvious, but it it comes through pretty well in a good English translation as well, then... Like Luke, Matthew is emphasizing the authority of the twelve over demons, calling them unclean spirits in this case, but Matthew adds that healing was to come to every disease and every affliction, everything. And so he links the healing of every disease and affliction to the very ministry of deliverance which arises from having authority over all demons, Now that's really important because if you understand that a lot of the maladies and sicknesses and diseases that we deal with in people as we pray for them, that they may in fact have demonic roots, then you understand that maybe part of the reason we haven't had breakthrough like we think we should is because we're not actually dealing with the root cause. We're just praying for healing and what we really need to be doing is driving out demons first and then praying for healing to come behind. Which is why I prayed the way I did. If you saw me or were listening to me, I rebuked Keteb, commanded it to get out, and then I prayed to the Father for healing to come. Because until that, if if there's a spirit there, there's not always a spirit there. But when there is, if there's a spirit there, until you get that spirit out of the way, it's like having a plate of armor between the individual and the power of God. And our standard Western theology always says, well, but you know, God is all-powerful. He can do anything He wants. It's true, He can. But usually He won't apart from His servants who work alongside of Him. And so if we're off script, if we're not doing what He commanded us to do, and we just read what He commanded us to do, if we're not doing that, why would we expect to have the effects we're supposed to have? Does that make sense? So... Jesus said that driving out demons is proof of the kingdom's presence. He says this in Matthew 12, 28. He says it in Luke eleven twenty. 20. If I, by the finger of God, drive out demons, then you know with certainty that the kingdom of God has come among you. So all of this is integrally tied to this idea of kingdom breakthrough or the proclamation of the kingdom. And so as we think about what I've just said, apparently deliverance and healing are more tightly linked than many have thought. And the truth is that for many of us, uh, we're uncomfortable with the ministry of deliverance. We may have had modeling or teaching or our favorite you know, guy that we follow, uh, they don't like to talk about it or they kind of do deliverance light or they're up on the stage kind of rebuking into the air and you know, Satan, take your hands off of the people of God. But most of this doesn't really have power and authority. It's not direct engagement. We don't really see um, Jesus praying that way when he dealt with evil spirits, even when big ones that were coming after him, like the storm on the lake, where, by the way, he rebuked the wind and the waves. Same word. So again, when Jesus does that, this is not some sort of out there, unfocused thing. It's more like a rifle shot. Boom! Be quiet! Stop it! The storm stops. And that's really where we need to be Refocused. We need to get back to the individual level of deliverance ministry that Jesus commissioned the 12 to do and ultimately passed over to the whole church. I know that the the transmission process is broken down, but that's getting fixed. So we may have heard theology that attributes everything to demons. Some teachers say that, and that's just shallow thinking because as the old saying goes, if everything's a demon... Then ultimately, we get kind of burned out with that, and it comes around to where nothing is a demon. And all the demons that are really there get left behind, and they continue to work their mischief because no one's actually addressing them. Um, We may have seen poor examples of deliverance with harsh or arcane behaviors. And so this can be very offensive uh, because we see the foolish or dangerous behaviors. I mean, I've had meetings in China and India where demons started manifesting, and I don't even know where people got it, but suddenly out of nowhere they've got a length of chain or they've got a big bamboo pole, and they're, they're hitting the person who's manifesting. Would you have liked to have been hit with bamboo and pole? No, I didn't think so. So, um, you know, when that goes on, you know, people get offended. They're like, forget it. If that's deliverance, I don't want anything to do with it. Depending on what jurisdiction you're in, it might be illegal. Five of the seven states of Australia... Exorcism, which isn't the same as deliverance, but they often are viewed as the same. Exorcism is, is outlawed in seven, or five of the seven states of Australia because of the dangerous behaviors that people have engaged in. Um, so for some people, deliverance seems archaic. It's medieval, and so it's unscientific. It's out of touch with the modern world. Well, this is intellectual pride, and many people have been taught to believe this way. And to some others, it may seem Pentecostal, maybe uneducated, lower class, socially unappealing. This is still pride. It's just a different kind of pride. The first one was intellectual pride. This one's social pride. I'm better than they are. And there's a lot of churches where people kind of view it that way. You know, that's for those people kind of down the road, the dirt road, living in a trailer, on the south side of the tracks. Those people, that's, they do that, but we don't, we don't do that here. We're better than that. And then to others, um, the necessity for deliverance has been obscured by teaching that, you know, we become like what we focus on, and so we shouldn't focus on demons lest we become like demonic people. Having fun over there? (laughs) It's okay. This is the Holy Spirit, so we're good. (laughs) So people say we shouldn't focus on it, or it was all done at the cross, and therefore Christians can't have demons, and so we kind of (whistles) right over the top of it. But this is both poor theology and a poor understanding of church history. Which is why we need to have some training in theology and church history. You don't need to have it right now, and you don't need to have it to start in the ministry of deliverance. But somewhere we need to get a little more understanding of who we are and where we came from. And in many cases, we've lost or never learned the skills to diagnose demonization or to minister in this dimension, and so we just ignore it. It's like, it'll go away. But that's just inadequate training. So going back to the 1980s when kingdom teaching was really kind of at the forefront, before there was um, Bethel, before there was, well, really even Randy Clark's ministry, uh, before there was H-Rock, before there was Toronto, Brownsville, just go on down the list of these moves of God that we've had, teaching about the kingdom of God in general and in healing in particular it kind of centered around what we then called the already versus the not yet. And so it came to this, if people got healed, we said that's the already of the kingdom. But if they didn't get healed, we said it's the not yet of the kingdom. And so, well, how long is it not yet? Well, you know, you might have to wait until until you die, but but you're going to get it then. All right, we got two two of them here now. This is good. This room's going to erupt in laughter and that'll be the end of the sermon. <laughs> This is revival culture. we like it. <laughs> so there is this reality that even though Jesus announced the inbreaking kingdom, the kingdom isn't fully uh, worked out, It isn't fully consummated until He, re- until he returns. But here's the, here's the, the tripwire that we really need to watch. Theology has implications. Theology does have implications. And so when people are healed, if we say we're experiencing the already, and when they're not healed, we say they're experiencing the not yet, eventually it kind of really takes a couple notches down. I don't know that I've ever actually heard anyone say this, but in so many words, where we end up is, oh, you didn't get healed? It sucks to be you. And and that's not where we want to be. What we need to have is this idea that there is a breakthrough, Somewhere. Now, there is one exception that I'm not going to go into. It'll take us down a rabbit trail, but we can talk about it later. But in general, we should understand that we have a mission that we're after on this. And so what if some of those healings gone wrong are not actually the result of the not yet of the kingdom? What if we've not addressed the root cause of the sickness? What if healing is hindered because we've actually not gone after that root cause, which, as I've already said, is often demonic? There are some other routes too. I don't want to make it sound like this is the only one, but this is a big one and it's one that's frequently overlooked, so we're highlighting it. And what if deliverance is needed far more often than we've supposed? That's why when I pray over Kateb now, I'm very intentionally addressing the evil spirit, whether it's in a group or if I lay hands on people, whatever is happening. And of course, you saw the signs of it right in front of you. A picture's worth a thousand words. So often the most dramatic examples of kingdom inbreaking happen at that intersection of healing and deliverance, And we have to employ deliverance to bring about the freedom that Jesus paid for with His life. So what happened at the cross? Because the cross is the center of all of this? Well, it says in Colossians 2:15 that God canceled the record of debt that stood against us. It was actually opposed to us. It was our opponent. and Jesus canceled all of that out with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities. These are two classes of demonic beings. Paul articulates this not only here in Colossians, but in Ephesians, and he talks about it in uh, a little bit in Galatians. So these are, these are classes of spirits. So rulers are like sergeants in an army, and authorities are like the line soldiers, so He canceled out and disarmed the rulers and authorities. These are the demons we commonly run into that infest people's bodies and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the language of the gladiator's arena. This is the language of combat. It means that when Jesus had finished up on the cross, he put his foot on the neck of the fallen foe and he looked up to the emperor's booth, we'll say to the father, and he was looking for... Or, and the father said, he put him to open shame. So swing the sword around, just like in gladiator. So what do we say? Jesus wins. He wins over the demonic, and we can too because we are in him. God raised Jesus from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Watch for this language, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These are the four levels of demonic power that Paul articulates in his writings. So it doesn't matter how far up that demonic pyramid you go, he's above all of them and above every name that is named, and not only in this age, but in the one that is to come, and he put all things under his feet and then gave him his head to the church. So if you're in the church, you're in the body, and the body's connected to the head, so that authority flows down from the head and it doesn't really matter which body part you are. You might think of yourself as a nose hair or an earlobe. You might think of yourself. <laughs> you might think of yourself as an appendix or a pinky toe. You, know, you might view yourself as relatively unimportant. But if you're connected to the body, and everything's under the feet of the body, then everything's underneath you, and you can bring that authority to bear. This is about direct level combat when we engage evil spirits, looking for breakthrough in people's bodies. So deliverance from evil spirits is not automatic upon conversion. A lot of churches teach this. You know, once you get saved, it's all taken care of. I call this the one and done theory of atonement. But sanctification isn't automatic. The scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Well, just so we have to work that out. And part of that is getting these demons that have hung on and caused havoc in our lives out in order that we can have the freedom that Jesus paid for. So deliverance is part of sanctification, and it is the, uh, shall we say, peak experience part of sanctification, rather than the more mundane and less exciting part of, you know, Christian spirituality, like prayer and fasting and Bible reading and communion and all that sort of thing. So think of it this way, if this is kind of where you get born again, and this is where you go to heaven, I think the standard model of Christianity that we've often been told, never consciously, but this is what's in the background it's in the operating system and it infects a lot of our thinking is okay so you know whatever this is the moment of conversion so now we're up here we're at a higher level praise god and then we kind of you know we're getting more holy a little bit at a time and then we get to the end of our life and that's it that's what the chart looks like but actually what it's supposed to be is we get saved and then we get cleaned out of this stuff and we go a little bit we get cleaned out of more and we get cleaned out of more and so we're actually at a much higher level We're living what, in the 1920s, they called the higher life. No one's teaching on the higher life quite that way these days. But around 100 years ago, that was the thing that everybody was really focusing on. And God has made a way for us to have that higher life. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May the God of peace sanctify you, spirit, soul, and body. Paul contemplated that your spirit, well, that gets taken care of at conversion. Your soul and your body get taken care of in the course of life. And it really becomes a question of how soon, how much. And, you know, we kind of move forward through that, and we find various levels of breakthrough. Now, the church fathers testify to this, but very few people read the church fathers. And even a lot of the theologians that read them tend to discount them as, well, you know, they were kind of benighted fools because they lived a long time ago. They didn't have our... Modern scientific point of view. They didn't have the Hubble Space Telescope and cell phones. And so you see, they didn't really know what they were talking about. They actually knew exactly what they were talking about, and we've drifted away from that. So let me give you another story to illustrate everything we've talked about. We're near, we're near landing. We're not quite there, but we're... You know how you can feel when the plane's starting to descend, but they haven't quite put the landing gear down? So we're coming down. But um, I went to Taiwan uh, around the same time frame, about 2017, maybe it was 16. And we went to the south of the island to a a city named Tainan. Now, Taipei is the city that, if anyone knows Taiwan, they generally think of. That's where most people live. It's the big business and political center. Um, Most of the Christians in Taiwan live around Taipei. If you get out of Taipei, Taiwan is almost entirely pagan. But it's a great country. I mean, the food's wonderful. The people are friendly. Um, It's been kind of an American protectorate for years. And so, you know, their electricity looks like ours, you know, two plugs at 110 volts. You can drink the water right out of the tap. Uh, It's a great place to go, and you don't have to worry about many of the usual things that beset missionaries. But anyway, we'd gone down to Tainan in the south of the island, and they brought a woman to me who had a severe digestive disorder, and they wanted me to pray for her. And so I started talking with her. And as, I, as I'm di- dialoguing with her, I learned that, okay, she's a Christian woman. But her husband is, to say it properly in Chinese, she, he's a Taoist. Now, if you've ever seen T-A-O, you might say Taoist, because that's the way we would do that in American English. But the right way to say it in Chinese is Taoist. So her husband was a Taoist. And she tells me that they have a large altar with a big idol, big idol, in their living room. I'm like, why do you have an altar with an idol in your living room? You're a Christian woman. She says, well, my husband is a Taoist. And he wants to sacrifice all the meat that we eat to the idol before we eat it. Now, we don't really have that, especially in a place like Apple Creek. We don't have that. But if you're in New York City, or maybe Columbus, parts of Columbus, if you're in Chicago, or you know wherever, Washington, Los Angeles, a lot of these cities where we have you know different kind of population mix, people have immigrated, and of course you know every religion is viewed as equally good, uh, you could find this actually in our country as well. But in in places like Taiwan, it's a major deal, and so I asked her, well, why on earth would you would you go along with this? And she said, well, a few years back the mainline churches in our country acquiesced on this point to keep families together because we'd had a problem with uh, families that were mixed, like mine, you know, part Christian, part Buddhist or Taoist or whatever they are, animist in some cases. Uh, They've mixed all of that, and and it's causing these families to break down because the Christians are saying no, and it's disrupting normal family life. So the, the leaders of the mainstream churches... Many of them have brand names like you would recognize here in Ohio. I'm not going to call them out because I'm not trying to make enemies with anybody. But but you would recognize the names of a lot of these denominations. And they would be mainstream, kind of Protestant churches of, of the sort that we think of. They would not have names like Freedom Fellowship, just as a hint. <laughs> so they'd issued a, basically a decree... And said, yeah, go ahead and you know, participate in all of that stuff. And I just said to her, well, you're wrong. She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, I took this Bible and I showed her in 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols. You see, in America, we don't have any grid for this. We don't know what this even means because mostly, even in this late date, we're kind of living on the fumes of a Christian society. And even our unsaved friends and family, they're not sacrificing meat to idols, most of them. And so you don't really see this left, right, and center, but it's a big, big thing in a lot of these societies that have a very strong polytheistic and pagan root to them, like Corinth, like modern Taiwan. And so I showed her why it was true, and if you want to reference this, you can look at 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verses 20 and 21. I'm not going to go there tonight because I'm trying to get done, but, but you can look at it there. But anyway, Paul explicitly says that when you do this, Christians come under the influence of evil spirits. That's the takeaway. And so there are other gateways for demonization that he lists also. Desiring evil, engaging in idolatry, sexual immorality, testing the Lord, grumbling. So you might not have an idol in your living room, but just think for a second, do I have these things going on in my life? Grumbling. Anyone here ever been guilty of grumbling? Personally, I've never done it. I wouldn't know anything about it, but, but you might. Okay, so anyway, Paul says, based on everything I've said, flee idolatry. And Paul, who is generally known as the apostle of grace, he actually says he does not want the Corinthians to be participants with demons. Corinthians, I don't want you to be demonized. Apple Creekians, I don't want you to be demonized. Ohioans, Californians, Americans, I don't want you to be demonized. But sometimes we are because we've opened these various gateways, and guess what? Affliction follows it. Paul even says you can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And yet, oftentimes we do. You know, we come and we say, Jesus, forgive me my sins, and then we take communion. But do we actually do a careful analysis to say, have I been guilty of some of these things in Scripture? So, Paul's point in saying you can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, his point is not that it's impossible to partake of both. You surely can partake of the table of demons and of the Lord in a physical sense, but rather it should not happen. And when it does happen, then you have open doorways that will create problems for you down the road. By the way, I don't think this is true of COVID. I think COVID is a global assault on our race. So don't anyone get under condemnation if you got COVID and think, I sinned against God, that's why I have COVID. Because there is the general sense of Satan afflicting the world, too. But I'm talking about ministry tools and techniques right now. We're trying to sort people out. All right, so Paul goes on. He says that when you engage in this, it provokes the jealousy of the Lord, just like with Old Testament idolatry. And it raises the question of whether Christians really think they can get away with it and stand up to God's jealousy. Paul even says, you don't think you're stronger than the Lord, do you? Do you really think you can get away with this? And yet in America today, we are so willful, we are so proud, we are so used to doing everything the way we want to do it and remaking our theology in our own image that we don't actually preach the truth of the Word of God and tell people, knock that off, it's harming you. And you've also actually chosen off God, and you have a problem not only that the devil's having a go at you, but God won't rescue you because of what you've done to insult him. And this is a widespread problem in America. I mean, I could name names and churches and stuff, but again, that's not what I think my calling is to do, so I don't do that, but I do point it out. But anyway, this woman now, when she understood all this, she says, well, so what do I do? I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to repent of eating the meat sacrificed to that Taoist idol because you violated the instructions of the Lord when you did it. And Jesus will heal you. It took about an hour to get those demons out of her. They were stuck in there real good. You know why? Because she had eaten sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice, meat sacrifice, twofold. And if you do enough deliverance, you start to learn the importance of some of these kinds of things. This is why people still do sacrifices in many cultures. We don't really do it much in our culture. But she had eaten sacrifice, she'd eaten meat. So it took us a while to get the demons out, but she did and she was healed. And so when she was healed, she's remained healed to this day. I still stay in touch with the pastor, and this is the way it's rolled. Jesus wins. Now, I want to make a point here before we finally do land the plane that in the New Testament, there are two critically important words for healing. The first one is therapeuo. We get the word therapeutic from it. We all recognize the sound of that word. Therapeuo always refers to physical healing. It may be immediate, It may be progressive, but it is healing under God's power, but it's of a physical condition with no other stuff thrown in. The other word is the word iaomai. It's spelled I-A-O-M-A-I. I-A-O-M-A-I. In Texas, there's a hospital chain called the IASIS healthcare system, and IASIS got their name from this word iaomai. What's the difference between Therapeuot and yaomai. Well, I told you that therapuo is just like it's a generic healing, whether immediate or maybe drawn out a bit. <clears throat> but yaomai is a physical healing that has a secondary complication to it. For example, somebody might be sin sick. They may have committed a sin. There are some healings that Jesus did where people had a sin root, and that was what opened the door. If you want a modern example, think of somebody who's a drunk. How do you think they got to be alcohol addicted? Think of people who catch sexually transmitted diseases. I'm assuming, of course, that there, there is always the possibility that an unfaithful spouse brings it into a marriage. But But in general, the way people get venereal diseases. We don't even call them that anymore. Now they call them sexually transmitted infections. They're trying to clean up the language and make it less pejorative. But whatever you're gonna call it, you know how you get that stuff. You're doing something you shouldn't ought to be doing. So, so there is this sin sickness thing, and that can be ya'omai. But it is normally used to describe healings that include being delivered from a variety of ills or conditions that go beyond physical maladies including, but not limited to, evil spirits. That's exactly what the word yaomai means. And by the way, I got that definition from the standard Greek lexicon of the New Testament that all scholars use. It's called Bauer, Art, Gingrich, Dunker, usually abbreviated B-A-G-D. So, not all yaomai healings are deliverances, but they do all have something else going on beyond mere physical healing. And... Many deliverance healings are in fact Ya'omai healings. What are some examples? Remember the centurion servant, he's lying ill. The centurion comes and says, Heal my servant. That's a Yaomai healing. There was something else going on there. It wasn't just that he was sick. How about this one? The woman who had the demonized daughter in Phoenicia. Jesus has gone to the beach for a vacation. She comes, pray for my daughter. Jesus, first he doesn't even respond to her, but then you know he ultimately does. And she goes, what do you want me to do for you? And she goes, I want you to heal my daughter. He goes, go, your daughter is healed. And it says, and the demon had left her daughter. The demon had left her daughter. It doesn't really elaborate what the condition was, but the problem wasn't the condition anyway. The problem was the evil spirit that had come in. And I could guess what some of that was because Syrophoenicia was a notoriously, riotously immoral place. Probably when that woman came up to Jesus, she was wearing a string bikini, maybe not even wearing the top. Because that's the way they dressed in those days. That's part of what God said when he said to Abraham, because of the immorality of the people in this land, the land is vomiting them out and I'm driving them out and I'm giving it all to you and your descendants. That's why I'm doing it. Well, do we live in such a time today? You bet we do. And by the way, I'm not just taking shots at women. The men are worse than the women, but not by much, not anymore. Because women are watching about as much porn as men. Women are engaging in many of the same things as men. So men and women, we stand alike condemned. But there is a level of immorality in our society that, is, that has not been seen since the last days of Rome. Literally. And we're legitimizing it, and our leaders are promoting it. So, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter was a Yahomai healing. How about this one? Luke 6.18. Power was coming out of Jesus, and everyone who touched him got healed. That's yaomai. That's not just Therapeu. So that power that was being released was dealing with something. And guess what? Many times in the Bible where we see power being exerted or flowing out of Jesus, it's dealing with the demonic. So maybe a lot of those people were being relieved of their demons just because they came into contact with Jesus. The woman with the issue of blood, Luke 8, 47 she was yah healed. That tells you that her issue of blood, it wasn't just that she had a bleeding problem. There was something in the root of it. It doesn't say what it was. We don't know if it was sin sickness, if it was demonic, it was an inner healing issue, but something was going on with that lady that was way beyond just she needs a physical touch. She needed a physical touch, but she wasn't going to get that healing without having that other layer of encounter. Then the ten lepers, one of them comes back to thank Jesus. Ya'omai healing. Why? Well, because leprosy was kind of understood to be a curse of a type. And so something was going on in those lepers. Again, the Bible doesn't really elaborate what all that is. You'd need to go into the Old Testament and understand what's the logic behind where leprosy comes from. But the point is you could figure that out, and with it you could diagnose maybe what's behind a lot of modern leprosy. Here's a, just a side story on this. But we've had a lot of teenagers in the kind of you know, age where faces break out and sometimes it's really, really bad. You know, in the, in the Ten Commandments, it says, Honor your father and mother in order that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has giving you. And we have had a number of young people in their teens with really severe acne cases. Um, you know, the, the, oftentimes the parents will bring them and say, Will you pray for my kid? And I'm like, Yeah, but without you. So, you know, we leave them over there, and I talk to the kid, and I'll say, I mean, they can watch what's going on, but I don't want them to hear what's going on because I, be, I want the kid to feel free to talk with me. And if mom or dad is standing there, they, they'll clam up. So I'll, I'll ask them, so how are things at home with you and your parents? They're fine. Oh, really? I'm convinced. That's good. <laughs> tell me what's really going on. And so what it all comes out, right? Conflict with mom and dad. And I'm like, well, you know, I know it's hard, and this is what goes on in the teen years, and so I kind of walk them through that. But I tell them, you know, it may well be that part of the reason your skin is the way it is is because you're actually violating this commandment to honor your parents. And if you will, if you will make peace with your parents, it may be that the Lord's going to bring you freedom. And I have seen many dozens of young people come back the next day and their face is clear because they made their peace with their parents and they repented of all that stuff. I mean, we know what goes... We were all teenagers once, weren't we? Whether it's rebellion or smart-mouthing or sneaking out or drinking or drugs or sex or, you know, whatever, we get into that stuff and we're all like, yeah, to my mom and dad. And, you know, it, it has a physical effect in our bodies. It's a ya'omai healing. So when we see young people released of acne because of that Healing of the relationship with mom and dad, that's enormous. How about the man at the pool of Bethesda? Jesus healed him, and he said, stop sinning or something worse will befall you. Well, right there, it tells you it's a ya'omai healing. There was something that man was doing that was sinful. Again, the Bible doesn't give us all the details on it, but point being, there was more that went on than just be healed. And then in Acts 5.16, where it says that people gathered from around the towns that surrounded Jerusalem... And many who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits were healed. Did you catch that? They had unclean spirits, but they got healed. That's Luke 9 and Matthew 10 in operation. But in Acts 5, Jesus is gone. He's in heaven. And this is happening under the care of the apostles. Specifically, it's speaking of Peter and his shadow. But what's going on? They're they're being healed from evil spirits. By definition, it's a yaomai healing. What do you know? In the Greek text, it uses the word yaomai. That's a pretty powerful concept, isn't it? And so when, you know, Yuri said to me, we're looking for more understanding of breakthroughs on healing, this is the stuff we're talking about. So I could give you um, a bunch of stories, but let me just let me just give you uh, one, and then we'll be done. So please put your seat backs in their full upright and locked position. Tray tables stowed and locked. Seat belts buckled. Please put your carry-on luggage away under your seat. So this came out of my own home church in Southern California. I don't pastor the church. I just go there. If I were the pastor, I'd be a derelict because I'm gone all the time, and I would never actually be pastoring the church. But this is where I go when I'm home. So there was a woman there, and um, she was a Chinese woman. And she had suddenly, mysteriously, just lost it, gone crazy. And um, she had divorced her husband because she found out that he was molesting their son. Well, I would argue she had scriptural grounds for divorce because he'd violated the marriage covenant. He was committing adultery of a particular kind. It also happened to be incest, but anyway. um, So she divorced him, and that was the end of the marriage. And after about three years, she was lonely, and she wanted another husband. And so she began seeking one. And being Chinese, she went to our Chinatown right near downtown L.A. And there's a fairly large population down there, and it has all the stuff that you'd expect, pagodas with the kind of you know things that sweep up and a lot of red-type art and herbalists and acupuncturists and all these kinds of things. And this woman was a Christian woman, so she goes down there and she does what every good Christian woman would do. Um, she went to an herbalist and asked for a potion that when she gave it to the man of her choice he would fall in love with her now in Ohio you might be going is that really a thing and let me just tell you this is a thing this is the way it really rolls in the world of spirituality and a lot of these alternate societies and things It might not be the way it is here in you know Ohio but again if you went into Columbus or Akron or Dayton or some of these cities you might run into pockets of this so anyway the person gave her this potion and he said now here's the thing when you give it to whoever the man of your dreams is, be sure that the very first person that he looks at after he drinks it is you. Because he will fall in love with the very first person he lays eyes on. She said, got it. So she has this bottle and she goes home and she spends a few weeks praying about it. Who should I give it to? (laughs) I'm glad you see the contradiction here. Some churches sit there and they're like, oh yeah, really makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> good job pastoring, Yuri, you got them tuned up, they're ready for this, all right, so uh, so she spends a few weeks, you know, praying about this, she finally decides, okay, this is the guy I think I want to give it to, but she goes, but but I want to make sure this is going to work, what if it doesn't work, so she does the most logical thing in the world, she goes in the bathroom and pours half of it into a cup, and then she drinks it and looks at herself in the mirror, and it's like, Flying, springs out of her head, smoke coming out of her ears, and she just instantly, and descends into this chaos. So everyone in the church is praying for her, and they're claiming and decreeing and doing all the other ineffective prayer models that are out there. And uh, <laughs> Part of my job in life is to run down sacred cows and turn them into hamburgers. So anyway, uh, they weren't getting anywhere with any of that. So I come into church one morning. I was not traveling that weekend. And so they bring her over to me. They said, can you pray for her? And I said, um, what's the problem? So they told me the story. They, they didn't know about the herbalist and all the rest of it, though. And so I started asking her questions. You know, one of the most important things you can do in this thing is ask really good questions and figure out what's what. So anyway, the story that I told you sort of comes out. And I said, well, here's the problem. I said, you got demonized with whatever that spirit is that's behind that potion. And you happen to look at yourself and like narcissists. Remember the myth of narcissists? Might not actually be a myth. But, you know, he was, it's a Greek story about a man, very good looking, long hair. And, you know, he looked in a pond and saw himself and fell in love with himself. And so that was the with her. So I had to repent of having violated the command of the Lord by seeking an herbalist. This is really the same thing as what we see in the Old Testament that says you're not to consult a witch, you're not to engage in any kind of necromancy or astrology or any of that kind of stuff. It's just a different form of it that's peculiar to Chinese society. So I had to repent of that, and then once she'd done that, Um, we broke the power of the spirits that had entered her when she drank the potion and drove them out, and she was instantly restored to her right mind. And she's still in our church, and she's totally normal today. She did go on and meet a man in the normal way. And (laughs) (laughs) I think the rest of the potion went down the drain. But anyway, um, so what do we say? Well, Jesus wins. That's what we say when we talk about this. And I've got many other stories of melanomas healed and MS healed and all of this sort of thing. Each of it is, is its own story with its own angle and interest point, but the, the bottom line is, in all of the stories that I have here in my notes that I'm not giving them all to you tonight, uh, in all of them, there was some sort of intersection between demonic power, things that people had gotten into, or in some cases had been handed to them by their family line, and, uh, and now they were stuck and they couldn't get healed until we got rid of their evil spirits, and when we did, they got healed. So I really want to encourage you to think deeply. I want you to think biblically about matters as they pertain to these kinds of issues, because there are many, many, many more people who can be healed, who ought to be healed, that the Lord will heal if you'll um, scratch a little deeper, not just pray simple healing prayers, but mingle as needed. As needed isn't always needed. And you'll need discerning of spirits to figure that out, and you'll need some experience. Experience helps a lot. But you'll be able to get to the bottom of things, and you'll see many more breakthroughs. All right, with that, I will stop. You've been very good to listen to me for a long time. Shabbat. I don't know why, but just now something came to mind, so I'm going to tell you one more quick story. Maybe this is going to lead us into our ministry time. I told you when I started that I had just finished a three-week trip, 20 days, around the United States. My second stop was in Richmond, Virginia. And I did a meeting there um, in which there was a woman who had gone to one of the good Virginia universities And she had ultimately gone to work in the government. And as part of that, she'd been stationed in Afghanistan. This is obviously before what happened early this year. Some years back, maybe seven or eight years ago. While she was over there... And by the way, she had enormous digestive problems. And had a lot of food allergies. um, And she had many problems with her monthly cycle. And she had a skin rash that wouldn't go away. And so... She'd been in Afghanistan, and I started talking with her, and I asked her, what did you do in Afghanistan? Well, you know, I was there representing the government, and I and I said, wait a minute, let me ask you more specifically. Did you go into any mosques? Yeah. Okay. I said, what did you do in those mosques? Well, I was an ambassador of goodwill, so I participated in the prayers. Not good. What else did you do? Well, there was this one family on our street and they had this uh, celebration and they had a big pot. We'd call it a cauldron. A big pot and they put, you know, meat and stuff in it and they boiled it. And she said, but I specifically remember that uh, when they were doing that, they got several buckets of blood and poured the blood into the cauldron. I said, well, you, you do know that the eating of blood is forbidden. And she said, well, that's only Old Testament. I said, oh, no, it's not. Just look at Acts chapter 15. Oh. And then we'll just leave it generic. She'd had some liaisons. We'll just leave it at that. So we have three major issues here, right? We've got that she had participated in the worship of another god, which is idolatry, even if there's no statue at the front of the mosque. She had eaten halal food, which is dedicated to Allah, and she had eaten blood. I'm putting them in the same bucket, but it's actually two different issues, but they both involve food. And then the third was her sexual immorality. So this woman was a you know, normal-sized woman. You wouldn't call her fat or portly. Um, she wasn't like thin as a willow, but, but you know, she was a normal-sized woman. And they brought out a, like a trash can about this high, you know, like you'd use in your kitchen. And we almost filled that with her vomit. You can't get that much vomit out of a normal stomach of about this size in a normal-sized human being. Where did all that come from? I don't know, but I'll tell you what... We drove demons out of her for quite a while. They were Islamic demons and whatnot. She also, by the way, got healed of her sciatic condition. Many people get afflicted with sciatica specifically as they traffic in Islam or when they exit the Islamic community, there's an exit tax that the demonic rulers of Islam levy on those who are coming out of Islam. And I don't know why, but most commonly, it hits them here in the right side and goes down about to their knee. It can occur on the left, but it's about 90% of the time on the right. And so she had that. Her sciatica got healed. Her food allergy got healed. Her monthly cycle, I have since learned, got healed. All of this got healed because we dealt with the stuff that had been mixed up in her. And she'd done everything that you would normally do to get healed. So sometimes when we're seeking healing, we have to go after the evil spirits. Does that make sense? All right, so on that note, <laughs> I'm just going to ask a question here. I know there's um, some Amish in this area, and there, there's some German and Swedish and others as well. Some of those northern European countries, the Czech, the Hungarians, the Germans, uh, the Scots, um, more the Norwegians than the, than the Swedish and the Danes, but sometimes they get involved too. The eating of blood is common and they have what they call blood sausage. Anyone here participated in any of that kind of stuff? In your families? One? I only see one. I'm surprised. Two, all right. Are you just coming late to the party? Yeah. I was sitting You know, it's interesting, in Taiwan they eat it. This is how they do it. You walk down the street and you know the kind of street stands that you see in New York City or Chicago. They have those, but they they sell jellied blood on sticks, and people buy it, and they just eat it like you would a popsicle. Guess what? Everybody in Taiwan needs deliverance from eating of blood. This is real stuff. I know it's not your common experience, so some of you are like, is this guy out of his mind? He seemed rational a few minutes ago. But this is, this is the stuff. And, you know, sometimes our sexual immorality gets us into um, problems with our food and our digestion and our eating. Now, we're in a mixed crowd, and I want to keep this really clean and above board. But I'll just say there are certain kinds of actions people can engage in when they are uh, unmarried and they are engaging in sexual activity. If you do this in marriage, it doesn't seem to be a problem because the marriage bed is undefiled. But immorality opens a doorway and evil spirits will exploit it. And sometimes people have stomach and digestive problems because of their involvement with certain kinds of sexual activity outside of marriage. They had an affair or they were merely immoral prior to being married. Now again, this is commonplace in our world. When I was a kid, I'm not saying it didn't go on at all. It's always gone on on some level. But it was not widespread and commonplace. In our time, it is widespread and commonplace, and yea, verily, it is expected. In fact, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, if you don't, you're never going to get married because you know, nobody will date you. Well, it just shows you how far we have drifted and just what the level of, of sin is in our country on that specific issue. So this woman had been involved in the eating of food that was dedicated to idols, dedicated to Allah. That's what halal does. She'd eaten blood. She'd had her, you know, whatever her sexual involvements were. And so um, all of this had to be cleaned out. I'm just wondering, how many people in this room, we had a a few hands go up on the blood eating. Let me ask a more generic question. How many people in the room tonight have various digestive and eating problems? <clears throat> okay, this is, this is a common thing, isn't it? So I think what I want to do is have a ministry time over that. And um, if you put up your hand, why don't you come down to the front? And let's see, everybody that is sort of the big entourage that (laughs) came with Chris, that's part of the school that I run, uh, we're going to need ministry team up here. So if you are part of that entourage of whatever number it is, come on up here and stand up here so we know that you are are us. Oh, okay. Yeah, Chris just said, uh, this is for those who normally pray with me pray for people now the main reason i'm doing this is this is what jesus did right he he had his thing but then he got the 12 going and then he got the 72 going if i prayed for every person here individually i'd go to bed at 4 a.m this morning but i am here and i'm i'm overseeing this and i will pray for uh some of you tonight and the team will pray for you as well Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you've engaged in some of the things that I've described, so eating of forbidden foods, things that you had reason to believe were actually dedicated to other gods. By the way, this does not mean if you went into the Thai restaurant and you you ate there, this is automatically a problem. Um, If you asked, was this food dedicated to the Buddha that you have at the front of the restaurant, and they told you yes, that's a problem. Because Paul says, once you are aware that it was dedicated to the idol, now it's a problem for you. But if you don't know, eat what you find in the marketplace. So you're okay if you've been eating Thai food or Chinese food. But again, if you found out, that's different. If you ate halal food and you know that it was halal food, that's a problem. If you, uh, if you uh, participated in anything that may have been dedicated, like the woman in Taiwan... You're on some missions trip or something, it seemed like a good idea at the time. That's a problem. If you've engaged in sexual practices outside of marriage, that's a problem. So what I want you to do, I'm going to lead in a prayer. You don't need to declare it in front of the whole room, but I do want you to pray at least subaudibly. okay? So this isn't just in my mind, I'm praying to God. Let your lips be moving and say it. You can say it quietly. We're not trying to out you and shame you. But I do want you to verbalize it because there is something about confessing with your lips that releases something. And then we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit to come on you. And we're going to rebuke the evil spirits that are harassing you in your digestive tract. And the team is going to kind of move out. And I will too, but I've got to tie my shoelace before I do. <laughs> I realized while I was preaching, my shoe came untied. So I'll do that first. Um, what's that? <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Ba-ba-ba. Shh. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then as the, as the team comes up to you, if these, if these things are not releasing, see, the Lord's already falling on you. You're going to have a good night tonight. <laughs> Your years of affliction are about to end. Isn't this exciting? I love this. Um, and I, I love it that the Holy Spirit's moving before we even pray. Isn't that exciting? Yes. So if you're stuck, things aren't you know, releasing, well then to the person who's praying for you, you can say it quietly. If you need to, just whisper in their ear. But the scripture says confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Now if you're getting free, then you don't need to do that. But if you aren't getting free, then go ahead and do it in order that you can get the freedom you need. Does that make sense? Again, we're not trying to outer shame. We're trying to get you healed. But we are addressing issues that are clearly in Scripture that are often not addressed in order that you can get the freedom you want. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the Word of God. And we thank you for the truths that are in it. We thank you that Jesus drove out evil spirits by the finger of God. And the finger of God is both the Word and the power Father, we thank you that you're already moving before we call you answer. And Lord, you are giving us insight into great and marvelous things we have not known, but we are knowing them tonight. And so, Father, now we come to confess our sins, the things that we've done, whether we knew they were wrong or we had no idea they were wrong. Nevertheless, they were wrong, and so we come.